0: welcome to the bridge fun conversations on culture life and everything in between
1: find us where you get your podcasts if you like the show then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars suggestions comments anything you would like to share email us at we love at gmail.com we love the bridge Welcome to The Bridge. My name is Jason. Today we have a special guest. Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney is a professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University, a fellow at the Hainan CGE Peace Development Foundation, executive director of the International Center for Advanced Political Studies, and associate editor at the US-based Journal of Chinese Political Science. He was formerly a university professor in the United States and a public health officer with the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. His writing and comments regularly feature on various media platforms. Welcome to the show, Professor Mahoney. Thank you, Jason. We'd like to get a little personal, human. Could you tell us a little bit about how long you've been in China and what brought you to China?
0: Well, it's complicated, because I think a lot of people, they come, and then they leave, and then they come back. Mm -hmm. So, uh, presently, I've been in China uh, since uh, 2010. Mm -hmm. But the first time that I came to China was 1998, Mm -hmm. and I lived in uh, Shenyang, up in Liaoning province. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, later, I lived for a bit in uh, Guangdong, down in Maoming, working at the time for uh, Sinopec. Uh, one of the Chinese uh, national oil companies. Went on and did my doctoral studies and um, um, my interest in, in my doctoral studies was related to China. My initial experience in Shenyang in, uh, starting in 1998 and then, and then subsequently, I, I, had, I had been around the world and I had worked extensively in the U.S. but also in other countries and one of the things that struck me was that China had figured something out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to know what that was. and what And what I mean is i was I was observing what I perceived in real time to be um, the erosion of the middle class. Um, in the United States, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, something that we know uh, begins in the in the 1970s and begins to accelerate in the 1980s. And I've been doing all this work in in um, underserved and, and and poor communities in the United States with CDC um, and seeing how they had been abused uh, systematically in the, the field that I was working in at that time, most especially was um, uh, environmental health. That's one of the things that took me to Shenyang. And so I go to Shenyang, and at that time, Shenyang was, by some accounts, the second most polluted city in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it had the the heavy industry had had collapsed. the The central government had let it collapse because it was at the end of its life cycle. <clears throat> um, and there were reports that the real unemployment rate was somewhere around forty percent. So even in what was then the the second most polluted city in the world. With that very high uh, unemployment rate, I still came away with with this idea that the Chinese understood something. Mm-hmm. That in spite of all of that, in spite of all of that, that they understood something, and I it wasn't clear to me what it was, and it wasn't clear to me that they knew what it was. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, they were sometimes you you do things and and you don't know why you do it or or you know where the cultural roots are, or 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 what have you. Um, but it only becomes evident when you compare it with its absence somewhere else. So I became very, very interested uh, intellectually in trying to figure out uh, what that was. And so I went back uh, to do uh, my doctoral work and focused on trying to figure out what that was from a political philosophical perspective. And um, that's what led me down the rabbit hole, led me, uh, for better or worse, <laughs> uh, to, to Marxism. And um, that led me to political activism, as well as being a professor in the U.S., and then that led me to being uh, bought out and blacklisted from my last university in 2009.
1: It's always a good idea to get tenure before you become a Marxist.
0: Well, <laughs> you know, sometimes you do things backwards, but they, uh, they still work out all the same. But no, I, I ended up leaving uh, the U.S. and I came to work here in Beijing um, with um, what was then called the Central Compilation and Translation Bureau. And there were two sides to that operation. One was a translation side and the other was a research side and I was working primarily serving the translation side. They were translating uh, Jiang Zemin's Selective Works at that time. Mm. And I was an expert on um, uh, the theory The Three R Presents, uh, Sangha Daibiao. Um, um, but then I was also doing some stuff on the research side that was being published in some of the, the journals. And uh, one of the courses that I've taught at ECNU for the past 13 years is uh, Marxism. Mm -hmm. And I teach it uh, to uh, Chinese students, but also to the international students that have joined uh, the program that I founded um, in Chinese politics for foreign students six or seven years ago.
1: That surprises me that a foreigner is in China teaching Marxism. I have another question. So right now, there's a lot of confusion. I would say most Americans know very little about China, but the Americans who do know something about China, in my own assessment, they don't really know what China is like. In your assessment, what does the West get wrong about China? What do Western people, not the media, but western what do Western people get wrong about China?
0: You know it's a it's a very big question, and uh, we could sit here for a couple of days. Uh, sure yeah and and, and and that's not hyperbole i'm I'm serious we could we could talk for for hours and hours and hours. I was having a conversation with with uh, with someone in uh Hunan uh, a couple of weeks ago and um and she was saying, "You know, I think the problem is that." Americans don't understand China, but it's also the case that the Chinese don't understand America. Really, hmm. What she was saying, so, so what, what I, the, the point I was going to make is that, you know, you, you, your first inclination is suspicion, and then you proceed with criticism, hmm. all right, because Marxism is a critical discourse. And my, my first response to her was to say, actually, I think the problem is that Americans don't understand themselves in some cases, the Chinese don't understand themselves. I mean, we we both create sort of these uh, cultural images or paradigms, and we assert these. Now, in, in the US, that, that happens, but the US, of course, has become incredibly fragmented. Okay, you're, you're a Republican, you're a Trump Republican, you're this, that, and the other. We have all these labels, but in fact, people have been fragmented into smaller and smaller uh, groups. Um, And they're all saying, okay, this is what it means to be American – in in some sort of sense, but it, it it doesn't mean that because you know they're not even really authentic versions of the ideologies that they are presenting in many cases, and those ideologies are by no means universal to uh, everyone in America or even America of the past. Right? China is also uh, an incredibly diverse place. We've had tremendous you know if you if you just look at the history of, of Chinese modernity. Radical change, radical shift, generation to generation mm. to generation, and then on top of this, of course, we had the massive uh, generation gaps that that came about in China, starting with the '90s uh, generation. Now, some people say they they start with the 1980s because, uh, but but actually, the, the 1980s are sort of an in-between generation. Kids in China are growing up completely in this uh, market society, mm. and then accelerating with that. Uh, especially the, the, the 2000s generations, uh, the first to grow up in the, the digital society. So you have China, which changes so quickly and has run so deeply and quickly into uh, digitalization. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, nothing that, that really slows that down. I mean, Europe today is so far behind in terms of, of digitalization. Uh, even though you know it's the, the the birthplace of the industrial revolution, they've always had some sort of resistance uh, to technology and, and and the way that technology plays in society. But China didn't have this. China ran straight into it, and so what we have is this incredibly diverse Chinese population that has that has experienced accelerated change from one generation to the next, and then especially starting with the 1990s and 2000s. And so we talk about this this tremendous um, generation gap. And of course, I see this with my own children who grew up in China but also the students that I've been teaching and how those students have changed. So you know we do have this 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 idea of a of a very specific notion of Chinese culture but in fact uh, China is much more much more multiple than I think it it mm-hmm. often realizes or or likes to accept about itself, mm-hmm. right? I'm not saying it's as fragmented or alienated uh, as we find in the United States. Certainly, that, that's not the case. But I think I think China right now is, is asserting a lot about a particular form of culture, in part because there's some sense that there has been so much change and, and they want to bring back towards a, some sort of central notion of what it means to be Chinese. Mm-hmm. But also, um, it's motivated in part by a an antagonism that they're receiving uh, from the West, mm-hmm. right? The West is saying, okay, well you're Chinese and you do things differently and you're opposed to us. And then this, you know, understandably creates this securitization and fear and defensive position. And the Chinese go, okay, yeah, we are Chinese and, and that's right. And and okay, we need to draw together and, and, and protect ourselves not only from, you know, new emerging threats like COVID but also um, frictions with the US and, and, and perhaps others. I'm sure
1: you're right. We could keep going on. You're listening to The Bridge. Within this context, California Governor Gavin Newsom is coming to China. And uh, China has been, California, when I was a little boy, uh, 1980s, uh, has been always wanting to be creating renewable energy using solar panels. But, you know, it hasn't really materialized in the way that uh, it has culturally wanted to do so. China is now doing everything California ever wanted, and China has as much solar as most of the rest of the world combined, as much wind as the rest of the world combined, is leading in all of these technologies. Given his visit is about working together on the climate, what do you think he can accomplish in his visit?
0: You know, I think that the, the we should always approach the question: What does he want? Mm-hmm. Right, because that's certainly going to guide um, his thinking. He's not coming here asking himself, "Okay, what can I do to improve China?" But but um, ostensibly, what can I do to improve uh, California? Mm-hmm. And um, it's clear that that progress on the environment in California runs into um, a lot of issues. Uh, a lot of restrictions that just don't uh, really exist in China itself, right? California does not do a good job, for example, balancing between uh, development needs and and growing the economy and um, environmental restrictions. Mm-hmm. This tends to be a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And there's constantly a war and a struggle in courts and you mm-hmm. know, a- involved. Um, and so projects don't really get done and the environment doesn't really get uh, promoted and things kind of stagnate. We don't have that problem in China. They're, they're constantly aware of the contradiction and then working systematically to try to resolve it. Uh, because on the one hand, they have very specific targets associated with um, needing to develop, but also very specific targets associated with green outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to be reconciled, right um, in, in California, they don't think that way. Uh, my brother is a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. he's based in the Bay Area. he he works for companies that are trying to develop, so he's constantly being frustrated by uh, environmental restrictions.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I believe bees are now fish in California, legally.
0: But uh, clearly, we live in a much more globalized world, and if you're a governor, you need to try to burnish your foreign policy credentials, and it's very hard to do that. Um, But I don't think that's the only thing driving him. because if you're an American and you're interacting officially with China today, you you're opening yourself up to a lot of criticism, and indeed he's been criticized extensively in uh, the American press for engaging mm-hmm. uh, with China. So I have to I have to say, well, maybe he has these aspirations to be president and. Maybe he's miscalculated politically, but at the same time, uh, I'm, I've decided to take him at face value that he cares about the environment, I, and I want to do that. I, I'm not always pes- optimistic, but but uh, uh, I'm not going to be completely pessimistic here. And I think I think he realizes, and I think a lot of countries realize, um, including uh, the Republic of California, that um, that if you want to make progress on the environment now, if you want to make progress in transitioning to to green energy. If you want to have access to these technologies and and these products, uh, as well as this vision, if you actually care about climate change on, on a global level, but also the local level, then you have to engage uh china that might make you unhappy for example this past summer i was i was in europe um uh doing field work and almost everywhere i went because of the energy crisis related to the the conflict in ukraine you now see uh houses covered in solar panels mm-hmm. right? yeah. where did those solar panels come from <laughs> mm. they came from china right mm. now is is um um is the, um, is the uh, EU government um, unhappy that they depend on China for uh, green products? And, and, and Germany certainly doesn't seem that they're, they're happy,
1: but they are <clears throat> importing for the time
0: being right well they 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 talk about you know they, they wish that they weren't so dependent on on one country that you know they they, they want to de-risk themselves from from being dependent on green energy but no one else really developed that capacity like china did certainly in the united states you had the major corporations that were actively undermining uh mm-hmm. those advances and and certainly the oil um uh coal and and automobile lobby um play, playing a very powerful role in the u.s uh to to uh, uh, you know they they would buy uh, innovative companies and kill them mm-hmm. uh, in order to avoid competition. And of course, this year uh, you have Biden who has. Um, uh, expanded uh, oil production and consolidated uh, America's position as the leading oil producer in the world. Um, you know, he came into office and he shut down the pipeline coming out of Canada, and a lot of environmentalists were happy. But what they didn't know is that he planned to refill the pipeline coming out of uh, Alaska, mm-hmm. that he didn't want uh, Canadian oil. He wanted, Competition. To, he wanted uh, to preserve uh, uh, American market share. So. When you look at that, combined with the fact that a lot of the environmental legislation that he managed to get passed, um, that he actually he hasn't actually uh, executed a lot of that, that they haven't actually hired people, so they got things passed, but they haven't actually done things, and it's, instead they've actually gone in the opposite direction and expanded oil production, and so you have this very superficial commitment to environmental policies, whereas you know his predecessor was antagonist, antagonistic to them, withdrew from the, the Paris Agreement, started scrubbing. Any sort of mention of climate change from federal websites. Um, so the U.S. I think has has through and through been a disingenuous partner um, internationally uh, when it comes to to uh, uh, climate change. And I think the main narrative of of, uh, of environmentalism in the United States is dominated by corporate greenwashing. Um, but I would like to think that. Uh, Gavin Newsom and, and and maybe some others in California, and certainly there are other Americans, mm-hmm. they see through this and they understand that we are, in fact, facing an existential crisis, right? And, you know, California is on the front lines of that crisis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and <clears> so- I, you I read know, it was
1: going to take $2 billion just within the next three years to- Prepare San Francisco alone for some of the environmental damage that is coming. Because we've seen climate catastrophe accelerating in the last two or three years, especially. And then even this year with, with uh, Hawaii, even here in China, here in Beijing, Togo on the west side, there was so, so severe flooding. There's flooding in different parts of Europe now.
0: <clears throat> well, let's be clear. There there was this, so, you know, I was born in 1970 and I remember, you know, the environmentalism of the 1970s and the mm-hmm. 1980s. And that environmentalism was always expressed or at least understood in a cultural context as doing the right thing. Okay. This is the right thing to do. This is the moral thing to do. This is, you know, good, clean, healthy living. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and a lot of people said, uh, you know, uh, that's the right thing for you, but that's not necessarily the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank <laughs> you. In, in China today we talk about the right thing we talk about okay well there's this old uh Taoist principle creating harmony between man and nature and Chinese Marxism and its contemporary uh, view has has assimilated that and now this has become something that that China has has theorized um and and it's clear you know you go back 10 13 years ago people in China are are, are now thinking about higher quality of living and they're concerned about okay how do we uh, get rid of air pollution how do we live uh, healthier lives and that motivates the government and, and and the government also talks about okay well it's the right thing to do but china is the most vulnerable country in the world due to climate change I'm sorry, how is that okay we can talk about countries like their island countries yeah, that's that, what I was thinking. that are at risk of being swallowed up right and and clearly that's that's something to be concerned about. But if you look at numbers of people impacted mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the likely economic cost, yeah. China's number one. Because it's 20% of the world's population. Not just that, but because they've developed so much and they have the big population mm-hmm. and they have geographically vulnerable areas, mm-hmm. right? Well, well, so, um,
1: you mean desertification in terms of geographic So there,
0: there are two main issues facing China. On the one hand, uh, and and in Beijing, you would would mention desertification, right? Actually if you look at a a world map, the desert starts in the Sahara, right? It starts in Africa, and then it moves across the Middle East, it moves across Central Asia, and then it moves across Xinjiang and Gansu and Shanxi, right? And now it's knocking on the door of Beijing, Mm -hmm. right? If you look at water surveys of of Western China, you see um, you see a problem, mm. right? It's dry and it's getting drier. Now, can they engineer solutions? They think they can. Whether or not those in, those solutions will be sustainable remains a, an open question. But when you look at the areas that are actually considered the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. because we don't have the majority of China's population in, living in, in the west, in the western part of the of the or the majority of Chinese development. Um, by some studies, uh, three of the top four most vulnerable areas in the world are in China. So one of them is the Shandong uh, area, one the second is the Jiang, Jiangsu, uh, Shanghai area, and the third is the, the Guangdong uh, area
1: is that because of heat? Heat? What is? What is? Water. How? In what way are they vulnerable?
0: Rising seawater, floods, extreme weather.
1: Mm. Most of the flooding that I've seen has uh, happened in the Zhengzhou area, Henan. That that kind of area, but it now seems to be this year. There was flooding in many different places in Harbin, in Beijing, and uh, elsewhere around the world as well. Um, you
0: know, actually, next week when I go to the security conference in 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 Hainan, um, I I will be presenting a case study on the wildfire that that uh, you know killed uh, the town of Lahaina, <laughs> uh, Hawaii. And I was asked to, to, to do a case study of that uh, for lessons learned. Mm-hmm. Like, what what were the various things that broke down? Why did this happen? And, um, you know, one of the things that you you, you may be aware of this, but- we, I- we
1: did interview a lady who was present during the fires and she was evacuated. And before you go continue, she mentioned that there were fires in elsewhere and that many of the fire crews left before the fire started there, but also wealthy people had taken the water supply for themselves and there were court battles ongoing, which meant that when they went to find water, there wasn't any to fight the fires, but also warning signals had already gone off earlier that day for different fires and then turned off. People thought those fires were put out. And then when the warning signal went off again, people thought, thought perhaps this is about the fire that was already dealt with and is under control. But in fact, it was a new fire and people were caught off guard.
0: Yeah, there there are a lot of different uh, factors, um, and of course, some of them are related to climate change, and some of them are related specifically to that town uh, because it's in the rain shadow of uh, the mountain there, um, and and so the the record drought that mm-hmm. the island was already experiencing was even worse in that uh, local town, hmm. but um, but the vast majority of reasons for that crisis were were uh, human error, but um, certainly the, the risk factors were very much intensified by climate change. Mm, absolutely. And um, so as I started digging into this uh, story, what I what I quickly became aware of and which others were aware of, but but uh and, and I may maybe we all sort of knew it, but but it wasn't that clear to me, is that twenty twenty-three was the year of fire.
2: Mm. Uh
0: the northern hemisphere had its worst fire season in history. Mm. I was in Greece when the fires were running. Mm. And um, that was a major concern, but they weren't just in Greece, they were in many countries in Europe, uh, uh, Russia, China, uh, Central Canada. Asia, Africa, uh, throughout, there were like 15 states in the United States that fought major fires. So um, this is this is the the phenomenon, the new phenomenon of, of global warming and climate change. And it's certainly a major problem in California. Mm, right? Every so year, it's, it's not just okay. We have drought, or we have uh, extreme weather, or we have rising waters, but we also have massive fires that are causing billions and billions in damages. And it's it's simply not sustainable. So whatever the, the the positive impulse, whatever is really guiding people to say, okay, well, we need to do this because it's the right thing to do. I don't think that's really driving policy now. Mm-hmm. I think this is what we have to do to survive. Mm-hmm. Insurance companies are certainly thinking that. Well, yeah, certainly. And, and you have major interest, um, you know, who are no doubt uh, pressing Newsom, okay, what are you going to do to make sure that uh, my property isn't ruined, mm. you know? What in, in, in other words, it's, we can talk about it in politically positive ways, but it's really about survival now. Mm-hmm. So we, with the the dynamic or the, the
1: outlook has completely shifted from we should do something about this to if we don't do something about this, it affects the wealthy, the people in power, the people who, who have interest and affect politics.
0: Well, they own most of the stuff that's going to get ruined. Right. So <laughs> –
1: You're listening to The Bridge. This kind of went off from my original thought pattern, but... China has been doing better in terms of environmental conserve, conservation. It's created a national park system. The United States created the first you know, major national park system in the world. But now China is doing the same thing. Uh, certainly, California has a great deal of, of parks and, and preserved areas. Uh, Yosemite, I believe, is in California. Although I think Yellowstone was the first national park. Are there lessons that Newsom can bring or learn from China in terms of environmental conservation?
0: I I, I was in um, one of these new national parks um, in Southwest China uh, a couple of, a, a year ago, and um, one of the things that that China has done that has been really really effective. Is that they they make the top local official personally responsible for the environmental well being. In other words, if there's a river in your under, under your jurisdiction, um, and testing finds that there are pollutants in the river, you're responsible. And um, if we discover uh, the, the the other principle of lifetime accountability, if we find. That these things were dumped. If we find later that these things were dumped during your tenure or that you approved a policy that allowed them to be dumped uh, or you didn't enforce, you didn't test, uh, you will be sidelined in your career. So this more than anything else has, has made um, people responsible, if you want to continue your career, if you don't want to be drummed out, if you don't want to be humiliated, if you don't want to lose your position, um, then you have to prioritize uh, the environment. And in some cases this this can include um, um, measures like uh, you can't have more than a certain number of days um, where the the air quality goes above a certain level, right? In terms of um, um, AQI or something, so that was that was one of the major reforms that that were put in place. That uh, then um, where we really began to see um, local areas clean up their act. And in fact, it, it 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 was so effective it created some problems. Um, there were many reasons for some of the uh, energy shocks that we had uh, last year in China. One of them, of course, was that the drought uh, mm-hmm. drew up dried up some of the rivers, and we were unable to to meet some of the hydroelectric um, um, targets. But it's also because local officials were incentivized uh, to get off of coal mm-hmm. as much as possible, right? So, and and when you're when your budget for, you know, uh, you don't just, you know, say, okay, I need coal next week and coal arrives, right? I mean, you have to uh, buy coal uh, a year or even two years in advance. Sometimes you, you, you put in a contract and then they have to uh, produce it, and then they have to ship it uh, a long distance. It's not something you can you, know, you just put in a in a in a in a delivery box, and, and it shows up. So uh, so people were were moving maybe too aggressively off of coal, and then of course we've had uh, the COVID shocks. Um, which have created a lot of instability in uh, global markets and manufacturing. So some years were boom years, where we, we we produced much more than we anticipated, and some years were lean years. And so because things have been so inconsistent, and because they're also being very aggressive about trying to move off fossil fuels, it was difficult for them to really accurately predict mm-hmm. a year or, or two in advance. And so this this created uh, some of the problems we saw last year with, with, with some the uh, energy crunches and blackouts um, and then on top of that of course we had a very very hot summer and people were using their their AC and, and other um, uh, energy uh, intensive um, uh, devices so the the um, the, the key is um, how what what could uh, Gavin Newsom learn from this he, he doesn't uh, he's not sitting on top of a of a of a political system like the one that we have in China, mm-hmm. he can't um, he can't create laws that create personal accountability. for- He can't impose that kind of discipline yeah, on probably on, on local pass officials in the United States. But I think I think what he can learn from China is is um, let us say two things. Mm-hmm. The first is that there is a comprehensive vision and strategy at work, the likes of which he has not yet imagined. Mm -hmm. That he hasn't even, that he can't imagine is, is... possible for China and that even in his wildest dreams he hasn't imagined for California. Mm. So perhaps he needs to take the high-speed rail from Shanghai to
1: Beijing and look out the window because you will see an enormous amount of solar everywhere on farmhouses on top of apartment complexes. So maybe just being exposed to it might give him a new outcome.
0: I think if he's if he's really paying attention, he needs to say, "Okay, what are you guys doing and how are you pulling it together and what are all the different facets?" Give me as 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 much as possible, the big picture. This will be difficult for an American to do because Americans tend to have a certain type of hubris, they tend to think that they're in a certain position in the lead, and they tend to doubt anything China does. But he can't even imagine all the things that are happening here on every level. In almost every county in China, right? He needs to get an understanding of 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 that. and then the second thing he needs to understand, and this this is what will be difficult for him, but um and it will be the most difficult thing for the u s to 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 deal with the you know china's party state system um uh, the party and and I'm going to use the right word here although some people would be a little um, what do you mean by that the party has a militant culture all right it regimented hmm? like very regimented they have they have they have a militaristic not not militaristic in the sense okay let's go kill people or you know let's invade Afghanistan or <laughs> sure. uh, Iraq or you know um, but they have a militant culture. And what, what I would suggest to you is that, it, and uh, this, isn't, this isn't theoretically the right word, but I think it expresses what I want to say, mm-hmm. which is, let's imagine that you're facing an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine that the future of your children is in doubt. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine, as science suggests, that outbreaks like COVID-19 correlate with climate change. Let's imagine that uh, the wars in the Middle East, but also the war in Ukraine, is in some way related to energy and climate change. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine that each one of these new events, as climate change continues to get worse, as everyone tells us that it is, despite all the considerable attention that's paid to it. As, as it continues to get worse, that it creates these new crises that make it even more difficult mm-hmm. for us to deal with it, mm-hmm. right? And then let's imagine that you are the responsible government of China, and you realize that a very large number of your people are not only worried about it they're actually vulnerable to it all mm-hmm. right now let's imagine that you have to put together a um, militant response mm-hmm. this is a, a, you know anytime China is facing a threat to its national security or to its sovereignty it responds uh, militantly mm-hmm. right so I think what we're seeing with China's commitment to addressing climate change is a militant response and this says okay we're and this isn't the term that they use, but but you know, in, in the U.S., if we have a state of emergency,
1: mm-hmm. they'll declare war on something,
0: right? Well, war that, that tends to be on silly this, silly that, right? Because uh, <laughs> sometimes they create war so that they can they can declare wars on them. In in the case of um, China, I think that there's this there's this sense that there's a that there's a state of emergency, mm-hmm. and the, the government doesn't always present it that way because they don't want to induce panic, right? But but the way that they're organizing and responding is with that type of urgency mm-hmm. and that type of commitment, we have a, a serious problem that we have to address for our well-being and the well-being of our children. Okay, it's not really open to discussion or moral questions or can we afford it? It's, all right, this is what we have to do. and. That's the message that I think Gavin Newsom really needs to understand. Mm-hmm. That-
1: I mean, I agree with you completely. I think I want to make the your answer more challenging for you, though, because in China, you have five-year plans and you have political stability of leadership, whereas in the United States, due to the election cycles and uh, – and because people are changing positions, leaving, there's a lack of ability to implement long-term planning in the way that it exists in China. I mean, certainly I would like Gavin Newsom to see what you're describing so that long-term planning could be a realistic way for, the, for U.S. politicians to deal with things. But I think it might be especially challenging in the case of the United States, given the manner in which our political system works for plans that are created under one administration to be continued into another administration. you don't have to answer that question. Well, I would say oh, that there,
0: there there are two or three things to talk about here, and it'll take us in, in different directions. But uh, the first is uh, the u s. does do some long term planning, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to yeah go ahead go ahead, explain. So, for example, the U.S. turn against China starts with Obama. Right. The and it pivot accel- to the Pacific. And it accelerates with Trump. And we see continuity with Biden.
1: Yes. That, right. that is a good example
0: so and we see a, a strategy that has been unfolding piece by piece right I'm not saying that each one of those presidents had the same exact vision but they have been following uh there's there's been a logic to what they have done concern about the growing economic Now, that's probably being driven by defense analysts and major corporate interests right but those shape policy and, and they also have groups in like DARPA and others that you know provide a lot of continuity from one uh, administration to the next. If you look at that and say, okay, well, the United States starting, it really accelerates with with Trump, but it was was even taking place in some respects before Trump, has demonized China Mm -hmm. and focused the American people on China as their biggest threat. Mm. It's not um, their own inability to work together and solve problems. It's not a constitution that can no longer be reformed. It's not uh, the fact that nobody trusts their own leaders or government, or um, it's not the fact that their government is unable to put together policies that save lives, and instead we lose a million and a half people during COVID. It's, those aren't the problems. The problem is China, all right. And that that has been something that has endured, and indeed it, 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 we saw a similar phenomenon during the Cold War between the United States and, and the Soviet Union. Mm. But but let, let us imagine that instead of people being concerned about China, that they were concerned about the real danger, mm-hmm. right? In other words, that our real danger isn't China, the real the real danger is ourself and our, the, the fact that we have the highest per capita pollution in the world, that proportionately the United States has contributed more to the Anthropocene than any other country, um, and that even a lot of the pollution that's produced in China, a lot of it is to produce products that are used by Americans, mm. right? So, um, and the only way that we're going to actually deal with this problem, because for years, Our companies and our culture and our and our government uh, uh, denied that it was a problem and even worked to suppress green development. The only way we can deal with this now is to work with China. Mm It was China's not the enemy, but working with China is the only way we're going to save ourselves. What if that became the message? Because that's that's reality. Mm -hmm. Well, can I ask another
1: question? Because I imagine that there are different forces in the United States that would. Not want to import China's high quality, low price point solar and wind technology. And similar to Germany, there are a lot of American corporate interests that want to see American manufacturers produce those same tools that we desperately need. Do you think that Gavin Newsom, California or other politicians across the United States are willing to set aside these corporate interests and put the crisis of climate change
0: first to import this needed technology now? you know in economics we can we can go back to david ricardo and we can talk about the law of comparative advantage and say okay um, you're supposed to trade on the basis of comparative advantage and right now because china made the investment when the us decided not to make the investment and because china has made also the investment in its infrastructure and its overall national industrial system and it has the most advanced national industrial system in the world in addition to having the most advanced uh, green technology and and green manufacturing um, and you're facing a, a crisis situation where you're going to have to put in place a costly transition that you can barely afford, right? And so you don't want to buy the, the the cheapest, best quality solar panels because you're worried that China is going to make some money from that, right? That seems to me to be... Um, Incredibly short-sighted, and um, I hope the Germans are listening. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you something else, uh, and, and this again risks taking us off track, but it's the second half to the to the dark question, or the dark half to the uh, the dark second half to the question that you asked a moment ago about about plans. Mm -hmm. I did spend part of the summer in Ukraine. I'm writing a book about, uh, the conflict in Ukraine and, um, and the, the, the conflict has sort of two levels. The, 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 the the first level that we all think about is the level of, uh, the local conflict between Ukraine and Russia, but that's not what's really driving the conflict. Mm -hmm. And, And even when I talk to people across Ukraine, working in the government, working for the army, working for Azov, um, Middle classes, what have you? Um, they all they all agree with this this point. In other words, that this war has been driven um, from its its earliest incarnations many years ago uh, to its present form by a proxy war between the United States and Russia. Mm. Okay, well, why why are we having that proxy war, right? And there are a number of reasons that have to do with strategic positioning and repositioning. But certainly one of the factors is that you have in the United States and Russia two fossil fuel dependent economies that are fighting over control of markets and how we pay for energy. That's what they're really fighting about. Mm. Okay. Yes, they're also drawing new lines for the new Cold War and, you know, so forth and so on. Um, but l- let me take you back to to before the the current, you know, in, in, in the Ukrainian perspective, the conflict goes back to 2014, but the more recent version of the war in in Ukraine. Before that conflict erupted in its current form, you had Russia, the EU, and China talking about moving past the petrodollar, mm-hmm. right? The petrodollar, uh, I, I think some people overstate its, its value, but it is a significant part of the dollar's position as the global reserve currency, as the supranational uh, currency. If you go back to how the United States responded to COVID-19, right? What did they do? Well, the first thing they did was they expanded the money supply by more than 20% Mm. in a year and a half. That's what really starts global inflation. Mm -hmm. No other country in the world can do that. Mm. And second, they started ramping up trillions in government subsidies.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: No other government can uh, print uh, the US dollar or run those sorts of um, deficits without collapsing themselves, Mm -hmm. right? So this is to say that, that to some extent Uh, The United States is only able to persist in its current form because of the power that the dollar has as the global currency. But once you start talking about people moving away from the petrodollar, once you start talking about Mm de-dollarization, Once you start talking about Russia saying, okay, listen, uh, we're going to go to war in Ukraine because we have to, because it's part of our strategic interest, um, and we're going to get cut off from SWIFT. Okay, who cares? Mm-hmm. We don't have to be part of that American-led system anymore. Mm-hmm. We can do things in other ways. This is, this is an existential threat to the United States. The U.S. The US economy depends on its ability to abuse the dollar mm-hmm. globally. And once that collapses, mm-hmm. what comes next? I, I, I think utter chaos.
1: I was I was speaking with an economist, um, Ben Norton. He's a journalist and economist with geopoliticaleconomy.com. and he said that there are two aspects to de-dollarization. One is trading in currencies other than the dollar. So you know Saudi Arabia is now trading in, in yuan and other currencies, and this kind of de-dollarization is occurring, accelerating everywhere, from Brazil, slowly, Saudi Arabia, slowly, but, but India,
0: yeah, Russia, but China. It will, but it, it risks the U.S. is terrified that it will risk a tipping point.
1: Right? Well, Ben Norton mentioned that there's another aspect to de-dollarization, and that is just most countries around the world are holding their savings in U.S. treasuries, and as long as this part of the dollar remains, this pillar, that it's unlikely that de-dollarization is going to move forward. He does say that it is moving forward and
0: that that is the reason that countries around the world are starting to hold gold. Why it hasn't hasn't gone all the way yet? Interest? Please tell me. Because China likes to get paid in dollars. (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
1: So China is holding a lot of Forex and US dollars. It's
0: declining. Yeah, Uh, yeah. It's declining. But my key point is this China likes to get paid in dollars. Mm. Why? Because China doesn't want to expose its own currency to global chaos. Mm. Right. But the moment that China decides they no longer care about getting paid in dollars, and this is what's slowly starting to change. Mm -hmm. Okay. Slowly starting to change. Once that happens, and, um, once China finds some sort of technical solution, so, you know, there's talk about, okay, maybe we'll have a BRICS currency, mm-hmm. uh, maybe there'll be some other form. This is the big theoretical and practical question that, that remains to be resolved. The dollar's finished. Mm. Right. And the, the question is, how much will the world or China, how much cost will they accept for doing business with dollars? So mm-hmm. Russia said, okay, um, the cost is too high. We're not going to do dollars anymore. Mm-hmm. China, the cost of not using the dollar right now is still greater for China than using the dollar. Mm. But if the United States continues to abuse its position and abuse China, then why stay married to the dollar? Right? Right. You, can, you can turn on a dime and come up with a different policy. Mm-hmm. And that's the tipping point that I think that we're inching closer to, but it's a tipping point that, that could have a cascade effect. Right. In other words, once we reach a certain tipping point, then we'll go over the edge, mm-hmm. and then things will accelerate. Now, I think the U.S. understands this. And I think what the U.S. has done is that they have, uh, of course, uh, reinvigorated uh, hegemony over Europe uh, vis-a-vis the conflict in Ukraine. And they have achieved the long-held uh, strategic goal of, of largely, not completely, but, but largely divorcing Europe from Russian energy. In the meantime, the U.S. has expanded its own energy production. And I think the U.S. Is, is falling back, it's uh, affecting a strategic retreat into a Cold War paradigm. But it will be one in which, okay, they say, well, you know, um, during the previous Cold War, we could we could dominate half the world, mm-hmm. but after the Soviet Union collapsed, we found ourselves consistently in a position of overreach, mm-hmm. and we're unable to uh, effectively control a hundred percent of the world or a large mm-hmm. percentage of it. So um, I think that they're they're falling back into a, a retreat position in order to sustain. My sense is that. The United States has decided that the cost of fighting climate change is too high. And and it's too high in, I'm saying as a strategic position, it's too high because the comparative cost, in other words, climate change, if climate change goes unchecked, then the cost to other countries will be very high. So, for example, China is most vulnerable to climate change. So in the future, the United States will face climate change, but so will China. And who will be the biggest loser? China. So that, we'll lose... That is an insane way to look at it. We'll problem. lose, but but they'll lose more. Okay? Oh, wow. And in the meantime if we were really serious about climate change then we shouldn't be expanding oil production we shouldn't try to prop up the petrodollar we should be accelerating our green investment and green innovation, and they're not doing—they're not doing any of those things. Instead, they're fighting a proxy war over control of, of oil markets and how we pay for the dollar. So, I, in this, in, in my analysis, I, I say, okay, yes, the the, U, the U.S. and Russia are adversaries, but they're also um, what the the French uh, sociologist Pierre Bourdieu called complicit adversaries. In other words, they're both they're both working in a way towards realizing the worst aspects of climate change. In other words, they're playing a strategic end game with that in mind. So that's that's what I'm really concerned about, and that's that's why I think okay, um, um, Gavin Newsom represents California. And California is perhaps one of the more vulnerable places in the United States to climate change. Um, And so his interests do not necessarily align with national security interests. You know, maybe from a national security point of view, uh, you're willing to lose California or big parts of California in order to Win an overall uh, strategic battle over the next 50 years. You know, when I started this interview, I had no idea. Usually I
1: have a pretty good idea where guests are going to go with things. This has been very insightful and given me an entirely new way to look at the world. You're listening to The Bridge. Um, I have one last question, and I, I like to ask a lot of my guests this same question because it is important for our show. You know, you're an American, so this makes this really uh, easy for me. What is the best way for Americans to better understand China and for maybe China and the United States to get along better?
0: You know, uh, I was actually in the United States for the two worst years of Covid. I went back to visit my my parents, and my kids and I got stuck there for a couple of years. and um, and I observed, of course, a lot of the my my kids are half chinese and 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 um and uh, they're not ashamed of that. They're proud of it. Um, and they're also proud uh, of being half american and and they they, they enjoy being human beings. Um, but, um, all the all the 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 misinformation that's being generated in the United States about China. Um, and and I'll give a very clear example. Um, there was a weather balloon that was blown off course right and um, the Americans panicked. It reminded me of the old, Cold War uh, German hit song, 99 Balloons," 99 Red (laughs) Balloons by Nina, right? You know, the balloon goes up and it it sparks a war because everyone is paranoid, right? But the problem is uh, the Biden administration in various ways told not only the American people, but the world Mm -hmm. that this was a spy balloon, Mm -hmm. that they were collecting sensitive information and transmitting sensitive information in real time and that they absolutely knew this was the case. Mm -hmm right? And so they induce hysterics, fear. He then uses this a week later as one of the key talking points in his State of the Union address. And then when he's sending his representatives to the NATO meeting a few weeks later, trying to use this as a justification to draw NATO in, China is violating American airspace. China is also thinking about selling weapons or lethal assistance to Russia to use against Ukraine, which is a threat to Europe. Therefore, NATO has an obligation to expand its remit to include China, right? So this was the... the, the, And it turns out, um and and this isn't this isn't me this is general the pentagon this is general milley the, yeah. the 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 chairman of the joint chiefs of staff who basically concedes a few weeks ago yeah it it wasn't a spy balloon it it was a weather balloon mm. it it wasn't transmitting sensitive information it wasn't being controlled remotely in other words he lied mm-hmm. He lied. He he created lies out of whole cloth and told lies to the world and created all this. When you have that kind of person, and and not just him, his predecessor did the same thing. You know, we we know this because he says all these lies about his communications with Xi Jinping in China over COVID, and he confesses to Bob Woodward that that no, China had been candid about it and had 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 warned him and said blah 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 blah, and instead he turns around and and creates all these false narratives about COVID. In order to um, try to bolster the American position and demonize China, it, I think it's very difficult for for people to even begin to have an understanding. I was working because we got stuck there. I, I connected with the local Confucius Institute in my hometown. And then COVID hit, and so they, we were working from home, and then the Tennessee uh, state legislature uh, decided to make Confucius Institutes illegal mm-hmm. because they were considered to be communist fronts invading America and spreading Chinese communist ideology. And so it was then illegal to have Confucius Institutes on state institutions in Tennessee, and they they shut it down. Mm-hmm. And, and the Chinese government had to charter a plane because there were no planes flying, had to charter a plane because the, the people who were working there teaching Chinese, mm-hmm. right? were, their, their visas were revoked. Mm. They had to leave the country in the middle of a pandemic. When you have that type of, uh, when you have people there with the Confucius Institute, and by the way, I've worked with Confucius Institutes. they are really, really careful not to talk about politics. Mm. Okay. How do we teach language? How do we share cultural uh, understanding? How do we promote people-to-people exchanges? Mm-hmm. Right. The Chinese government is paying for that mm. substantially, right? Almost entirely. Uh, why do Why do all these universities take these programs? Because it's these universities are, are now um, governed by the, the the business model. They don't like to pay for things. Mm-hmm. If they can get another country to pay for Chinese language instruction, okay. Yeah, thank you. Come and teach our students Chinese. We'll We'll, we'll take that benefit. So uh, this is why all these these places. Exist. Uh, accepted these uh, this Chinese outreach, and then all of a sudden, all of this goodwill is is turned into a poison pill. Um, how do we uh, tell Americans? I, I think Americans are so disconnected from reality at this point. Mm-hmm. How do we even tell Americans about America? Mm -hmm. Can can you find, you know, the fact of the matter is, a lot of the uh, American people believe that the 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 Chinese political system is evil. Mm All right, but they also believe that their own government is evil. Mm -hmm. How do you convince Americans that their own government is 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 or isn't evil? How do you convince them uh, of anything at this point? I I don't know. Mm. Right? Do you uh, get them to come to China? Well, they don't want to come to China right now, like they used to. um, um, they don't want Chinese coming to America, like they used to. There's there's so many restrictions now on uh, Chinese scholars or, or or other people going. Uh, there, you know, people are not welcome. They're not made to feel welcome. They're uh, investigated by the FBI, and then they, or they face all sorts of risks. Mm-hmm. Right? They face discrimination. They mm-hmm. face attacks. So um, there's been a complete breakdown in this. And uh, I, I was at this meeting yesterday, this BRI meeting, and I was talking to a scholar from Melbourne, mm-hmm. and he was saying, you know, China really needs to do a better job uh, explaining its position. And my, my response to him was, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. China has become a lot more sophisticated uh, in terms of telling its what it's doing and telling its story. And, and it's even, I think, gotten into a position of, of overkill, like trying too hard to tell its story, because uh, the fact of the matter is the story is just falling on deaf ears. Mm. And my response is, it's, it's not really up to China to tell its story better. Mm-hmm. It's up to other people to recognize that the Chinese people are human beings. They're trying to make progress and to listen to them, right? You can stand and yell at the wind all day long, mm-hmm. but if the wind isn't listening to you, then you're wasting your breath. So I don't think it's really about, um, I, I, think, I think the onus is on uh, the West. I think it's on America in particular to come to its senses to say okay you know what we have a lot of problems we
1: are at the end of the show we are out of time thank you so much for joining the show and perhaps we could have you back again you are extremely insightful well thank you jason thank you